You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Mark Rasimczynski and I, Niels Kastelarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. For those of you who are regular listeners, this podcast series is all about voicing our differences on the one topic that brings us together, namely systematic investing, using the often overlooked but very robust strategy of trend following. We hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to learn more by diving into the back catalog and listen to all the past episodes that you may have missed. Like last week's episode with Alan, where we discussed how the change of tone from central banks can affect markets globally and how trend following performs or has performed historically in a rising interest rate environment and the case for and against including carry trades in a trend following portfolio. So if you missed that one, I invite you to go back and listen to that episode. Mark, it's great to be back with you this week. It hasn't been that long, um, but after another eventful week and a busy month for those who follow the Fed or the geopolitics that's happening around us, how are you doing? How are things where you are? Good. Thanks to have me back. It's uh, middle of winter here, but uh, it's turned out to be a, a beautiful sunny day and a little bit on the warm side. So as as usual, this is it. It's it's warm in the northern uh, United States, so natural gas prices fall. <laughs> <laughs> they did, they did indeed this week. So uh, anyway, good to hear. We have a fantastic lineup of topics uh, for you, um, and uh, Mark brought along a lot of those. So uh, you can look forward to that. Let's have a quick look at what's going on in the markets at the moment. Naturally, of course, fixed income markets have been. In the forefront and and the center of uh, the action in the last couple of months, um, and the front end of the U.S. interest rates markets has priced in between 75 basis points and 100 basis points of tightening um, in the last couple of months, and obviously for the rest of this year. The one-year U.S. Treasury bill has risen from uh, to one percent, I should say, uh, from 20 bips in early December. The two-year U.S. Treasury note similarly has risen. Uh, to about 1.48% from around 50 basis points in December. Now, the two-year note briefly traded above 1.6% at the end of last week as St. Louis Fed President Bullard began pounding the table for more immediate policy changes than what the market had been expecting based on Powell's measured and deliberate pace. Yields uh, have fallen to touch since that happened, and that's being kind of walk lower by what's happening in Ukraine with Russia and other geopolitical risks and the release, of course, of the FOMC January meeting minutes, which showed an inclination to move fast, but no hint of an imminent 50 basis points increase. Now, Fed President Bullard, fearing that the Fed is behind the curve and that inflation may not recede in the near term, repeated his remarks on Thursday of this week, calling for 100 basis points increase in the Fed by July 1st. There are three FOMC meetings between today and July 1st. This indicates that Bullard sees at least 50 basis points move higher. You have to wonder if Bullard is inviting himself into a kind of woodshed meeting with the Chair Powell or whether Chair Powell has released the St. Louis Fed president to the press 
to prepare the markets for a 50 basis points increase. Of course, most commentators doubt this FOMC has the fortitude to raise 50 basis points, but time will tell. Now, it's also interesting that if President Bullard wanted to raise rates faster and curtail the quantitative easing sooner, wouldn't he have voted against the others at the January FOMC? Just questioning that. Bullard also said he thinks the overnight neutral rate of interest is near 2%. If that's the case, you have to ask if it makes sense that the 10-year US Treasury note also yields 2%. Let me bring it back to you, Mark, just to see uh, what has caught your attention in the last few weeks, either in the markets, in the news, from any perspective you want to bring up. Well, there's only two things that are relevant here. One is uh, is the Fed, which we've just talked about. True. And then uh, Ukraine, Russia, geopolitical issues. It's the, the, Those are the two things that are overhanging the market. If you think that there's a potential for, for war, well, then you're not going to be an aggressive buyer or a levered buyer of, of risky assets. Similarly, is, is that if you believe that there is a chance for a 50 basis point increase or uh any type of uh, aggressive move by the uh, Fed, you're not going to invest in uh, leveraged, risky assets. And the issue really comes in is, is that uh, for all the talk, we still haven't finished off the quantitative easing tapering, which ends at the you know, middle of March. So we're still adding assets to the Fed balance sheet. I noticed that, which yeah. Is, which is so, somewhat surprising is this is that it, so we can't get agreement that say that we should it ended this early we couldn't agree to agreement we can't get agreement on what we should do for rates and they haven't even sort of sort of floated any trial balloons and what they mean for quantitative uh tightening and the question i always ask this is a very simple this is that the fed now has a nine trillion dollar balance sheet and that's up from uh march of uh, of 2020 before the crisis of about you know four plus four and a half uh a trillion so we've doubled the size of the fed balance sheet and so and we haven't even discussed about even how to take you know one trillion off the table the market is uh, or their perception is is that the world is so fragile that even though we've added $4 trillion of, of treasuries and uh, mortgages to the Fed balance sheet, that it can't even reduce $1 trillion or have a discussion about it. You know, you mentioned uh, this thing about before and after the pandemic started. I did notice a tweet um, this morning, I think, where someone tweeted the share price, the historical share price for the last two years of Zoom, you know, the the, the, the tool we all learned to use um, in the last two years, right? Um, and um, it went up, obviously, like a rocket. But now it's down to exactly where it came from in March or February of 2020. Quite extraordinary. Right. And, and this is an important part. You know, we could discuss a little bit later. Is this is that for every trend, there will be eventually a reversal. So, so... Uh, at some point, you know, their trend followers say, "Well, I'm not a. I don't believe in mean reversion. This is is that, uh, you know, ultimately we're always mean reverters. It's just a, it's the time and place and how we uh, how we define what that mean reversion is." Yeah, I mean, it actually looks when you look at the chart, and I sort of vaguely remember it. 
it looked like a really nice uptrend and a really nice downtrend. So if you had the kind of the right um, time frame or look back period, you probably could have made money in both directions. Anyways, let me sort of talk a little bit about what I think uh, is going on in the trend following uh, world. I think that trend follows overall. We're still seeing good opportunities despite this week. We probably saw a little bit of a correction, I would imagine, in performance. Uh, bonds were getting some wind under their wings as equities continued to struggle. So I imagine that this has caused a bit of performance in both sectors as managers would be short bonds and likely still along a little bit of equities, albeit, you know, obviously somewhat smaller positions in equities uh, than a few weeks ago. Energy prices saw a little bit of an easier week, uh, so to speak. Uh, the prices eased off in the last couple of days. So I would imagine, again, that leads to smaller losses uh, for the week in this sector. But other commodities, I suspect, um, did pretty well. We saw higher prices in some of the metals, some of the grains. And on my side, the trend barometer um, closed the week again on a pretty strong level, a reading of 55. Um, and that's confirming kind of the strong uh, start to the year that we've seen for uh, trend-following strategies. Of course, people can you can follow the trend barometer on a daily basis on the website, of course. In terms of volatility, um, not much direction really showing up in the volatility space. The sentiment um, pretty much flips every single day, uh, and that leads to the VIX going up one day and down the next day. And also, we haven't seen any noticeable increase in uncertainty this uh, entire year or this year so uh, to date, which is highly unusual given the magnitude of the S&P 500's decline. And uh, there are some kind of similarities to what happened in Q4 of 2018 in what's going on right now. In Q4 18, the S&P 500 declined substantially while uncertainty appeared to be decreasing rather than increasing a behavior that potentially can be attributed to sort of a sluggish demand for options and is similar to what we have seen so far this year. Another similarity to 2018 is the quantitative tapering and the rate hike talks being the major driver of the markets. Of course, this year we also have some geopolitical issues that we need to mention here. Now, the lack of, the, of uncertainty in the markets is quite interesting to me as I think it's a sign of the conditioning and the narrative we've become used to over the years, namely that central banks have it all under control and they will come in and they will save the day, day when market prices fall. But to me, the bigger question is, and this might be something we're going to touch on later, Mark, the bigger question is, what if this time really is different and they are either not showing up the way we expect or they're not able to save the day when they try. So I think that's, to me, something that is, um, I really have no idea what the consequences could be if suddenly um, the narrative that a lot of us uh, have in, in our minds as to what will happen doesn't happen. So anyways, um, and finally, just in terms of uh, my own trend-following model, I'm not going to speak much about it on a week-by-week -week basis um, because we started posting uh, the monthly update that I do with Rich uh, on the website and there the numbers are there. So there's no point in me uh, spending uh, time, uh, your time every week to talk about that. Uh, but do go and read the week, uh, sorry, the monthly blog post. Um, so, uh, But that leaves, of course, more time to dive into your questions, which you can send to us by uh, emailing info at toptradersonplug.com. And um, and we have three of them today, but I will just say that there are 
uh, more questions that we've received, of course, but they have been somewhat addressed to uh, some of the other uh, co-hosts, and therefore I'm going to keep them until they uh, join me on the podcast in the coming weeks. Mark, do you want to add anything here, or do you want me to go straight to questions? Well, the final thing that, you know, it's interesting that we, we were talking about the Fed, you know, just a minute or two ago about, you know, balance sheet, what they will or won't do. And and that really is a sort of an outside discussion for most trend followers. A trend follower, you know, it sort of engages in par- parlor conversations about what policy might happen and what the fundamentals are doing. But that's not sort of... Uh, germane to the strategy itself of trend following, because you say, I can't predict what the Fed is going to do. Therefore, I'm going to follow prices. Uh, the one thing that we could say from a very existential, you know, high level is that a Fed that is slow to react to inflation data, it's slow to react to changing policy, will generally create more trends than a policymaker who is fast to react, because a fast react would mean this is that you're going to get more jagged, more immediate impact. So I can't say what the Fed is doing, but I can say is uh, from a trend following perspective is that if a policymaker or if data is slow to adjust or slow to react, then there's probably going to be uh, a slow trend in prices that can be uh, taken advantage of. So, okay, so before we go into the first question, I want I want to stop here for a second because I do want to comment on that um, because I think this is what you what you bring up is quite interesting and I think this goes to one of the reasons why people uh, to a large extent have had this impression that trend following has been sort of subpar in the last few years, even though I completely disagree. We've had three very strong years uh, in 19, 20 and 21. 2022 is off to a good start. Um, but but I will agree there was a period sort of from 2013 to 2018, which was more flat and, and, and tough. And so to bring it back to this point about um, uh, the Fed and, and why it probably is somewhat related to that period, the question for me is not so much whether they are, re- whether they are ahead or behind the curve. That has some importance, of course, and what you're saying is absolutely right. If they're quick to react, we might see that as certain tre- trends being reversed or stopped, like we saw the bear trends in equities in March of 2020 being abruptly stopped and, and turned by the actions of the Fed that were very quick and very decisive. Now, to me, the question is, sure, but what if the Fed has changed what it wants to react to? So what if it's gone from saying, yeah, let's focus on wealth effect. Let's make sure that the financial markets are stable. Let's make sure that they keep kind of moving higher and every, we all feel better. That's good for the economy and people will spend more money, et cetera, et cetera. But what if that, and therefore you could say we should react quickly if the markets go down and therefore, quote unquote, the Fed put was pretty tight. But what if the Fed put is not focused on that theme anymore? What if the, the focus of the Fed has turned to inflation? Then the Fed put, and I heard this a long time ago, um, and I forget who it was, unfortunately, but I heard for the first time, maybe a year ago, someone saying, I think next time around, the Fed put will be priced differently. And we're not talking about a 10% correction. It might be a 30% correction before they're even going to worry about this. And you would think that maybe it ties into 
okay, if the focus now is inflation, there it's completely different things they need to react to. It's completely different things they need to do in the first place. And those are things that may not be good for asset prices. You just talked about it before. If you focus on Ukraine, if you focus on on the Fed, I mean, you could be in a period like we saw in January, but where both of the two big asset classes will, you know, get punished uh, at the same time, which of course is the norm. I mean, let's not forget that positive correlation between stocks and bonds. That's what the long-term picture really is. We just haven't seen it for 20 years, uh, pretty much. So, so, so this is what I think is the interesting part of, 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 of the conversation. And that is, what is the Fed really going to focus on going forward? Because that's going to change how they're going to act in the markets. Right. And, and I think that uh, part of being a trend follower is learning to be humble at forecasting or uh, your ability to even try to forecast some of these policymaking decisions, the changes in expectations. You say, it is a difficult task. Therefore, I will not engage in it. I will focus primarily on what is the action that I see in price. So I just threw out the idea that the the policymakers may be slow to react and that creates, uh, you know, trend opportunities, which I I do believe is the case. That being said is, is that if you look at a curve of the two year, it's, it's gone from 25 basis points in September to, you know, close to 150 basis points. You know, it's about 140, 160 in the last week. So, so you have 125 basis points since September. Now, that is a really big movie, so, uh, move. Anyone, uh, so anyone who sort of said like, oh, there's going to be a slow reaction. The policymakers have been slow. The market has been really fast. So now the interesting part from a trend follower's perspective is this is that the big money from 25 to 150 has already been made. Now it's going to actually be tougher because now you have to study going forward what is going to be the trends or the possibility of trends from middle of February to, let's say, the middle of next September. And that's going to be what does the Fed actually do? versus what is the perception that the market has of what they will do. And that disconnect between those two is what is going to cause prices to move. And that is what the trend follower is going to try to exploit. Yeah. But of course, you know, just just to throw it in, um, I would say is that I agree with you. We may have seen a big part of the move in the short end, um, but I don't think we've seen much of the potential move in the long end, for example. Um, because again, the question is, like I was saying in my intro, if 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 the short term rates are two percent, um, you know, should t- ten years be two percent? Should thirty years be two and a half percent? I mean, shouldn't they be? And and with inflation at being at six or seven percent, right? I mean, shouldn't it be much much higher, really? Um, so, so it opens up for opportunities, and this is the beauty I think about trend following, actually, um, and that is you can see part of your portfolio you know, having extraordinary times. And, you know, let's face it, the short end of the of, of interest rates have not been the most exciting part of a trend-following portfolio for the, past right. 10, for the past 10 years. Same with currencies. Many trend followers have actually dropped it out of their portfolio. So many have traded euro dollar, uh, even if on the back end, you know, two years, as well as the, you know, the treasury complex. And and for a lot, they just sort of said, look, I've got to drop this market from trading because it's doing nothing. It's 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 taking up risk. 
I get uh, strange signals because uh, a small change in price could cause me to take big positions. So, so they dropped it out of their portfolio. So just when they dropped it, then you have sort of a 125 basis point move, not saying that it was at all related, but it's sort of say that the markets that you think are not going to do anything, then that, those are the ones that oftentimes have the biggest move. And, and this is, a, I mean, it's a great point. And it is something that we talked about uh, quite often uh, on the podcast, of course, in terms of what market should you trade and, you know, how it's almost the same as with a model. I mean, how do you know if a model is broken? How do you know if a market doesn't, it's not going to trend anymore? And I think, you know, history just shows us and it keeps reminding us that we have to be incredibly patient about calling a market, you know, out in terms of it's a trend following ability. And I think this is just one example of that. And this is why, generally speaking, when you are so diversified as we are uh, in, in, in these portfolios, um, we can afford to have five markets not really doing anything. And in fact, losing money for a long period of time, small amounts, typically. Um, because sometimes we, um, you know, we get these quote-unquote outlier moves that um, will pay for all the false signals we've had over the last uh, four or five years. So, okay. Well, on, on that yeah, particular point is, is that one of the chief skills when you buy into a trend-following program, or even when you build a trend-following program, is what we'll call it the uh, uh, craftsmanship alpha from portfolio construction. Mm. This is that... Uh, there will have a big impact on performance on the markets you choose to trade and the markets you choose not to trade. This is a, that it's, it's not as though that you say like, well, I, I have to spend all my time on what is the right trend model to use. There's a important part of what is the portfolio that you apply this to? How do you manage the position risks? And are, how do you handle these uh, exogenous issues of, do I ever drop a market? When do I add a market? So if there are more futures markets being added, is that when do I add that to my portfolio? And those are all, if you want to say, where is their skill alpha or where is their alpha introduction from the manager? It's those decisions that may be as critical as some of the, uh, to differentiate yourself from other managers than just choosing to trend. Yeah. Lots to talk about. Um, let's dive into these three questions we have uh, today before we get to uh, some of the other topics, because I have a feeling you and I we could go on and on and on. Um, so let's uh, let's move forward a little bit here. So the first question is uh, from Zach. Uh, Zach writes in: Trend following is a major interest of mine, and when I listen to your show, I gain many insights to the strategy. My question is how to calculate the risk to stop metric. I would naturally believe that adding up the allocation of each instrument and dividing it by the amount of acceptable loss, but not sure if this is correct. Could you please help me with this metric math? Thanks very much, Zach. Sure, Zach. Of course we can help. Um, so forget about how you think it is done because it's actually a fairly simple calculation. So when you want to calculate the total risk to stop in your portfolio, you simply look at the distance in price between, say, the closing price of, of, of yesterday in the price of each market. 
um, and then where your stop is for each uh, position. So let's just say you're long in the E-mini S&P and it closed at 4,400 uh, last night and your stop is at 4,300. So that's 100 points of risk you have for each contract you own. And if I'm not mistaken, I think one point in the mini S&P is $50. So in this case, you would lose $5,000 for each contract you're long if you got stopped out. So you multiply that with the number of contracts that you hold to get to the total risk in that market. And you do the same for all the other positions you have. I calculate the distance, take the point value and multiply it. And then you have your total dollar risk if you get stopped out of all the positions. And then you compare that to your count size. So if let's just say the total amount you get to in terms of loss is $100,000 and your account size is $500,000, then your risk to stop is 20% for that day. So that's how it's done. It's fairly simple, but it obviously takes a little bit of time in Excel to set up the uh, calculation and make sure you get the right point value um, for each of the markets because obviously they will be different uh, market by market. So I don't think, Mark, you probably have nothing to add to this since it's a very um, straightforward calculation, I imagine. But the implications are huge. So not that we get bogged down in the very first question. Sure. This is that when you think about it, this is that when you uh, create a trend, uh, you take a trend position with a stop, what you're doing is you're actually creating an option. So mm-hmm. uh, now, in, and generally, when you buy a call option, uh, what you're what you're doing is, is is that you're going to a dealer and you you pay them a certain amount of premium to to you know buy the buy the call. So so you're paying out premium for someone to give you this this call option. When I create a, a, a position based on a trend with a stop loss, is that I'm sort of self-financing or, uh, or creating the uh, the option myself. So instead of paying a dealer a premium, I'm saying I'm going to self-finance that. I'm going to use the, the difference between the price and the, uh, and the stop as the premium of what I'm willing to risk on a trade. Sure. And so 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 then when you think about, well, what's the volatility in the market? It's not the volatility in the market. It's what's the uh, what's the amount of risk I'm willing to trade? What's that premium that I'm willing to put on the table to take that trend? Now, as you move through time, prices move. You know, if you were running a uh, portfolio and you know, let's say that you were trying to look at your portfolio at an at the money call and then the market starts to move up, you'd have to uh, you know, sell out that call option and buy a next one. So you constantly have to adjust your portfolio. If you had to do that with a dealer, it becomes very expensive. If you sort of adjust your stop losses as the markets move, what you're doing is, is that you're adjusting your portfolio of options that you've created yourself, but you don't have to pay the bid-ask spread. So so in that sense, this is that it uh, it... it like creating an option, you have to think about what is the premium you're willing to risk and then how you adjust it over time. Now, the problem comes in, of course, is, is, is that uh, uh, what happens is, is that when the prices goes down and hits your stop, well, then in some sense, the uh, 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 it's like a knockout option because then your position is knocked out if it goes below the stop. 
So, so all of a sudden, this is, is that you'd say like, well, I still have to worry about volatility because if the volatility go, it gets higher relative to the volatility I chose to, uh, to set with my stop, then my option that I've created is going to get knocked out. If the option gets knocked out, I lose my position. So, so when you think about it, this is, is that there's trend following and there's trend following with stops. Trend following stops is, is sort of actually the uh, a proxy for setting up a portfolio of options. Yeah, and and actually a lot of people, obviously, we've had discussions uh, and people asking that question: Could I use options for trend following? Now, it's not something I would recommend, but but there is definitely a clear link in the payout profile of of taking a position with a stop and a long call option, for example. So, no doubt that there is some um, some good analogies there. Right. All right. Next question. This is something that's kind of interesting. Um, I had to kind of read it twice be- before I, I really sort of thought, hmm, well, this could be something special to discuss. And um, anyways, it's from Peregrine. Uh, he writes in, I just finished this week's episode and liked your bit about whether or not you are biased in evangelizing trend following. An interesting exercise might be to explore uh, and I quote, which clients would you turn away from a trend-following program? I think Jerry might have discussed this on a podcast years ago and said something along the lines, he meets all his clients, he wants to measure whether or not they can weather the drawdowns. I might be wrong, misremembering, but it's an interesting starting point. So I want to hear your uh points about this, uh, Mark, but let me just say um, first from my point of view, and that is, I think, Peregrine, you're absolutely right. We as managers, and we actually do it at the firm I work for, we should vet new investors when they come into the program to see and and make sure they fully understand what to expect in terms of drawdowns and difficult periods, etc., etc. This was actually one of the things that really surprised me when I joined Don, is that uh, our owner and president, that when there is a high net worth individual in the US that joins uh, one of our products, that he would take the time and make a call like that. Um, but I think actually it's worked out pretty well over the years uh, in terms of pretty low turnover from investors when um, even when we go through a difficult time, which we do, of course, uh, like any, everyone else. Um, so I th- actually think this is a really important point. Now, I don't recall whether Jerry does it or not. He'll, I'm sure um, he's listening to this on his treadmill at the moment, I have no doubt. He will come back and and talk to us about it in a, in a few weeks, um, but I think it's a good point. And then I can turn it over to you, Mark. What you think about it, and also should we turn away some investors? Uh, and by the way, I just want to ma- make a point also that on the on the blog post this week, uh, we posted a little funny kind of a, a summary of my conversation with um, with uh, Alan last week. Um, cheekily, we um, we we called it. Um, Please don't invest in trend following. So I don't know, Peregrine, whether you read that post, but if not, um, you might want to go and check that out uh, uh, as well. Anyways, Mark, over to you. Well, it's always important to know your customer, and uh, yeah. but knowing your customer is not so much what is their financial worth and whether they have uh, the ability to weather the loss or uh, actually. Uh, have the wealth to invest in the fund. It's a question is what's their mindset? Because when you think about it, is is that if someone comes in and say like, 
I want every one of my investments to to do well. And if you have a drawdown, I'm going to fire you if it's more than X percent. This is that you probably should walk away from uh, from that client. Uh, in general, what you're sort of saying is, is that you're buying trend following because you're looking for something that actually creates uh, or uh, convexity. And then when you think about it, is is, is that convexity is a great property is is that you know you'll be able to do better in arising markets and also do better in in uh not as poorly in in down markets so but there should be a price with that and the price of buying convexity is if the markets don't move can you withstand the price of convexity or put differently is this is that when you think about it is this is that uh all of the risk that you're associated with uh most of your traditional investments is, is associated with your, you know, what was called consumption beta. This is, is that because you're look, uh, if let's say stocks go down when the business cycle goes down, which impacts your consumption, you need to be paid a premium for holding that risky asset. If I have an asset such as trend following, it might do well when the business cycle does uh, poorly or the stock does poorly. Then you should sort of say, is, is that, well, it's not so much that I should receive extra premium. I'm going to have to pay a premium. I'm going to have to pay to buy that investment. And so there's going to be a cost with that investment because it's special. It's going to do things that other traditional assets won't do when other markets go down or if there's a business cycle disruption. And so can people be willing to accept that they have to pay a price for having this investment that creates convexity and if they say i if they say no i can't pay that price well then you should walk away from them they're it's yeah. not a good fit the, the challenge that i found having spoken to investors for more than 30 years now is that when people want to invest and they make their initial investment they have all the best intentions of uh, saying yeah when when that 25 percent drawdown or 30 percent drawdown comes it's not going to worry me i'm not going to be worried some might even say, oh, and that's a great time to add to my investment, right? But when the time comes and you go through that 30% drawdown or whatever drawdown, depending on the volatility of the strategy, of course, those kind of uh, memories fade very quickly from investors and, and fear takes over. And you know what? We can kind of laugh at it, but I fully understand it. I oh. fully, fully understand it that, that you, and this is the thing what is very challenging with 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 many types of investments and that is that we start to think about we start to think about things in an absolute term instead of the probability right so if if trend follow is down you talked about mean reversion earlier this uh, in our conversation if a trend follow is down say 30% what's the probability of that manager going down another 30% it's probably quite low because of the way our strategies adapt and self-correct and, and all of that stuff. Um, especially if you look at a manager's long-term track record, how many times has that occurred? Probably very few times. It could occur, but, but anyways. Now, often what happens in the stock market world, um, people see that a stock is down 50%, um, and they actually might think that's a great value. So that's a great opportunity for them to buy into that stock, right? So it's a completely different mindset. And maybe, and this is something, and I don't know it's, if this is just something I thought about uh, while we're talking, and so it might not be a good analogy. 
But I actually think, so if you're out flying, which I think you do a lot, Mark, I have done a lot uh, in my work, uh, when you hit turbulence, a lot of people think that's really unpleasant. And I have a feeling that if people could see out in front of the plane, they could see sort of, the, you know, out the, the, the front window, they could see the pilot sitting completely calm. I think they would be very calm. But because they can't see anything, and especially if it's pitch dark outside, it feels much more scary than it really is. And I think it's maybe a little bit the same with trend following because people can't really see how our models adapt and what we're doing and how we're getting out and how we're reducing risk and, and all of that stuff going on. I think they might feel that, that what they're holding is much more risky than, what, than holding a long-only equity position uh, in a stock that has already fallen 50%. I don't know. Does this sound crazy or? No, no, no. I, I think that this, uh, if you notice, we've had repeatedly on the podcast, I've often come back to this issue of narratives, which we might talk about uh, again, is, <laughs> is that there's the, there's the meta narrative of trend following. And then there's, we'll call it the micro narrative of trend following. And the meta narrative is, is that you're buying an asset that be able to provide positive convexity that, you know, there's trend following that lasts well in the long run. And people like that story, but that's when you go into the, the, the micro or the, this, the localized narrative of how did you make money this month? That's where they really have a problem because sometimes you'd say, you say like, I've seen trends. How come you didn't make money? I, I looked at a chart and you say you didn't make money. I, I saw oil was up. You know, sort of the stocks were down. You should have been long oil, short stocks. You didn't make enough money. And I think that uh, uh, they don't always appreciate. And it's harder for a trend follower to explain the localized narrative. Now, that they're, they're good at saying, I made money in this market. I lost money in this market. So that's, you know, uh, I always sort of say there's a difference between uh, performance contribution and attribution mm -hmm. a trend follower could do a good job on a, a month to month to say here is my contribution to return i made money in this i lost money in that if you say that the attribution why did i make money why did i lose that's a different narrative and that's harder to explain you say why didn't i make money well you know i i got stopped out of my positions that's not a, that's, that's not really a good discussion you go to a fundamentalist and then you sort of say let's say that the uh uh the you look at the big tech uh you know etf arc it's like oh value Funny is the you best mention over. That after i said after i said being down 50 percent yeah, you're down 50 percent yeah. but now now they could say like this is the best buying opportunity i've ever seen look at these prices uh you know Earnings for Zoom is still up, even though the price is down. So this is a great opportunity to buy in a cheap stock. The narrative is a lot easier to discuss when, as opposed to a quantitative strategy, because the quantitative strategy is that there's no passionate story you could tell when you don't make money. You say, well, it didn't work. I lost money. Is that the odds are still in my favor that I will make money over the long run, but you know, this month I lost uh, money in these markets and I made money in this market. There's no, there's no passion in that narrative. <laughs> you know, it's quite interesting you bring up ARC. And I, it's, I really, 
it, I don't want to say this to make it sound like that I have anything uh, other than respect for what they've done because I think uh, it's amended, tremendous what they've done uh, with that firm. But, I, but there was something interesting that took place this week, right? I think Cassie Wood was interviewed on CNBC, um, at least I think it's from this week, uh, and I saw this tweet where they showed a clip from it. And of course, their big theme, and I think there is some analogies back to trend following, right? So, you know, her big argument was that people are getting bearish and losing confidence in the whole innovation theme that um, that they're promoting, right? That's their big case, that innovation is going to be fantastic, right? And the interviewer, I thought that was pretty insightful uh, of him. He said, no, 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 Kathy Wood, people are not bearish on innovation, they're not losing confidence in innovation. They're, this is a bet against you. And I thought that was really interesting, right? Because I think sometimes that when we look at trend following and people kind of have had this period of time where they say, oh yeah, I've kind of lost confidence. I don't think trend following is going to work. Are they really, are they really saying they don't think markets are going to trend anymore? I, I don't know. So... Just something that springs to mind when you say that. Right. Well, and you can't help it is, is that when clients, you know, sort of call you up after uh, if you've had a bad month, is that you, you usually always take it personally. So, so sure. uh, of course. And I, I always remember a line from the from the Godfather the novel. It wasn't in the in the uh, in the movie. They said, uh, "Mr. Corleone, don't take it personally." And he says, "I take everything personally. I go to the golf course and I get hit by lightning. I'll take it personally." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, so it always, uh, if you're a trend follower, you have a strategy, you sort of think it's going to work. If performance doesn't happen in a given work, you accept that that's part of your strategy. But when people call you up and say, why didn't you make money? You still take it personally. <laughs> sure. Well, mostly because, at least I can only speak for myself here, is that, you know, it's not nice if your clients lose money, right? Even though we know it's part of the, of how it all works. Anyway, let's move on to the next question because it came all the way from New Zealand. So that's quite far away. It is from Graham and he says, so much enjoy my Saturday morning uh, catching up on your podcast weekly thoughts, insightful uh, generosity. Please, if you can delve deeply into the question of breakout, such a big picture strategy word, specify uh, specifics may include trend, uh, time frame, market, high, low, relative stop, how long before you know it worked or didn't work. So let me give give this a, a crack and then Mark, you can kind of tell me where you agree or disagree. But I think, Graham, if you want to think about breakout and the methodology, which is probably, I would say, I would say it's probably the original way of doing trend following is some kind of breakout methodology. So if you want to understand and visualize uh, a breakout method, you should probably look up on, on a computer, you should look up a Bollinger Band uh, or a Dungeon Price Channel. Those are very good ways of visualizing what a breakout uh, methodology looks like. And so uh, with Bollinger Bands, it's uh, you know breakout in volatility uh, and breakout in price would be uh, a Dungeon Price Channel. So 
both cases, you obviously have to define a time frame, whether it be 50 days, 100 days, 200 days. Now, I can't tell you what you should trade. That really depends on what you're trying to achieve and most importantly, what your research and your backtests are informing you about. But you ask something that I do think is interesting, and that is how long before you know it worked or it didn't. And I think this is pretty easy, Graham, because you have the benefit of being able to look up managers who've been doing this for 30, 40, nearly 50 years in some cases, whether it be AHL, whether it be Chesapeake, whether it be Dunn, We've all been there. We've all done it successfully, extracting profits from following these types of methodologies. So to me, the question is not if it works, but rather if you can make it work for you or if you're better off investing your money with one of these firms. And I'm pretty sure that if you have, you know, big enough account size and you and, and the reason I say that is you need to get that good level of diversification, right? You can make it work if you put enough time into your research. But I don't think a lot of people have the patience or the stamina to do that. Uh, so for me, the biggest question really is, do you want to be a DIY trend follower? Or do you want kind of the done for you trend following solution? And I don't think there's anything wrong in choosing the done for you. That's pretty much what we do for most things in life. Um, and DIY trend following is not for everyone. So to me, that's the question you need to ask yourself. What are your thoughts, Mark? Those are all good comments, but you know, I sort of go back to, you know, let's, uh, what is the breakout trying to do or what is the essence of what it's trying to do? And, and, I, and I break most trend following into two types. I call uh, two-phase linear models in three-phase nonlinear models. And what I call is a, a linear model would be, you know, moving average where I either take a long or short position. So I'm either in, um, in the market binary. on the long side yeah. and the short side. And a breakout system is fundamentally different because you're waiting for some threshold before you take action. So, so you could be long, neutral, or short. So it's three phases that you could possibly be in. There'll be a period of time where you won't do anything. And uh, and the times when you take action are uh, nonlinear. It's, it's, it's that you're going to have to wait for a threshold to occur either on the long or short side before you take action. And so, so it's fundamentally different than the way you would look at for a moving average. And so, so part of it is to start to say, like, how do you think the world behaves? Now, we'll sort of say that one man's breakout is another man's mean reversion <laughs> in the sense is, is that because you're waiting for markets to get beyond a certain threshold level, for uh, some people, they would sort of say, well, that threshold is so high that the market is probably going to move back to you know, trend or back to some equilibrium price. So there is a possibility with, uh, with a lot of breakout systems is that you would get more false positives. But when the market does break out, when it does move to a new equilibrium level, that you could be, uh, uh, you'll have access to higher potential profits. So, so some of there are some fundamentals on how you look at the uh, these market uh, models, and then you have to match that up against you know how you view the market and how you think about your risk. Yeah. Okay. Cool. 
Well, actually, it kind of leads us quite well into the first topic that you wanted to talk about, which is something that I think was inspired by maybe a tweet from Jerry or maybe a comment from Jerry. I'm sure you will uh, enlighten us a little bit. But this is this thing uh, where when we talk about trend following and we talk about momentum, you, you've got some, some thoughts on that topic. So uh, the floor is yours. Well, I think you're you're the one who started this. <laughs> so you said, oh, I'm the one who started. Yes, okay, you fair sent enough. me this tweet that uh, <laughs> uh, Jerry looked at some research where it was looking at uh, momentum, which uh, you know hasn't done as well. And he made the comment is is that trend following is is not equal to momentum, which I you know wholeheartedly agree. And and but it's important to understand uh, what is the difference between the two. Because I think that many people confuse the two. So uh, many equity people will talk about, well, I, I've got a momentum strategy. And that's true, but they also might be uh, you know, confused that and call and it's actually a trend following strategy. Right. And similarly that they sort of say, uh, there's others say like, well, momentum is fundamentally different than trend following, which it's not. It's it's how you look in and parse it and look at data. And so so I think it's important to define the terms properly so that you know that there is a difference. Because when I think what Jerry says, and he thinks of trend following, it is not equal to what the momentum people have. And so you shouldn't expect that they should do, have similar performance. So I start with the whole idea is, is that, that uh, and this is one of the problems we often find with trend following is, is, is that that's hard to often describe because there's not uh, there's no one single or very simple way to uh, describe what is it that a trend follower does. I, I think, uh, you know, say, no, that's not true. Trend followers are all the same. Yet, when you look at a lot of the performance in many of the largest trend followers, their performance actually differs. And so you say, well, which one should I choose? So you need to have some uh, taxonomy for trend following. And so I always sort of use the ideas that I call it STM. And, and, and this is, you know, what is the style? What is the timing? What is the markets that you use? So when you talk to a trend follower, you say, tell me your STM, give me the description. And then I go to the next person, ask him what his STM, and then I can look at the, uh, I can make the comparisons in and say, okay, which one, uh, why are, will they produce that it's different? But Getting back to the issue specifically of what is the type of style, we say there's two styles, there's trend and momentum. And trend has been described as an absolute strategy. So it's focused in on time series analysis. Momentum is a relative strategy because it's looking at cross-sectionally. So, so when you think about it, this is, is that as a trend follower, an absolute strategy, a time series would say, if I have a portfolio of 30 assets, I look at each one of those assets separately. And then I sort of say, if let's say it's a you know moving average, I'll look at either be long or short each one of those assets. So I only look back in time for each one of the assets separately and then build a portfolio from that. Now, Momentum is relative because it's looking at cross-sectionally. What, what it will do is say, I will take the 30 markets. I will rank order them according to the trend or momentum, uh, which would be maybe the past return performance over the last nine or 12 months. And then what I'll do is I'll sort of say, 
I'm going to go long the top decile, and then I'm going to go short the bottom decile. So when you think about it, this is that they're both maybe using a similar model, but one is just looking, uh, you know, you're going to have 30 positions, and the other one is saying this is that I'm going to sort of say I'm going to create a portfolio that only looks at the best on the, uh, in, and we'll put best in quotes, best in the sense is that the ones that seem to be having the highest return over the last nine months, and I'm going to sell those that have the worst returns. Now, in some sense, fundamentally, it's the same thing because when you sort of always half joke is, is that a trend follower is, a, is, is, is that, uh, you know, uh, instead of like saying buy low and sell high, you're going to buy high and, uh, and, and sell low. So the trend follower and the momentum uh, trader are doing the same thing. This is that they're looking for things that are doing well and they're going to be buyers and the things that aren't doing well, we're going to be sellers except that they're doing one is doing it cross-sectionally. The other one is looking at a time series. But can I just break up here and, and say one thing that is actually different? And that is, if you're a momentum trader and you're looking at 30 stocks, right? You have to pick 15 to go short and pick 15 to go long. Actually, all 30 could be going up. And that's the difference. So a trend follower would never go short in a market that, that is, is going up. But actually, a momentum trader could theoretically go short 15 stocks that are moving up. They're just mo not moving up as much as the top 15. Right. So so let's take the uh, the extreme. Let's say that the, the stock market is going up and every stock is going up. Yes, yeah. your shorts could still be in an uptrend. So, um, and people have somewhat addressed that. Uh, so, and uh, in, in when they've looked at this, where they pu they'll put on a, uh, a structure that that, the short has to be, uh, from a time series perspective, has to be going down for you to put on a short position. Now, you'd say like, well, why did we get here? Or how did we get this dichotomy between the two? You have to go back to the history of, of you know, finance and how, um, and how we've done research in finance and how, uh, you know, trend following has developed. So, Trend following has always been sort of an outcast for the finance community because most of it was developed during the same period when finance was pro-efficient markets. So if you're pro-efficient markets and you sort of look at the classic FAMA definition of weak form efficiency, well, you can't use pr past price data to be able to extrapolate anything. So right away, if someone said, I'm looking at trend time series, well, then that means that you're not part of the efficient market religion so therefore you're an outcast who are not going to talk to you so so it's almost as though that the technical you know trend following uh, group was isolated is on on their own separate island from the way finances has looked looked at things now on the other hand this is this is that when uh finance academics started to look and try to measure what we'll call a risk premium in the market, they started to sort of develop a lot of techniques that was focused on cross-sectional analysis. So, so uh, a perfect example is, is that when we look at what was called the FAMA French framework is, is that they looked at you know value, they looked at size, and they look at market risk. But they looked at this always on a cross-sectional basis. Cross-sectionally, is, is it, let's look at the idea of size. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to 
uh, take all the stocks. We're going to rank order them according to size. And what we're going to sort of say that what we found that well, if we look at the top decile of stocks in size versus the bottom decile in size, is that small cap stocks you know, traditionally have done better than large cap stocks. Is that there's a size risk premium or, or size risk factor. The same is done with value. We rank order of value. So, so it's natural. Then when they start to say, like, well, let's take a look at some issue about trends, is that they wouldn't look at time series. They wouldn't look at absolute. They're all going to look at this on a cross-sectional basis. Now, surprisingly, is, is that Fama and French redid their work, which was you know, done in the early 90s, is that they finally agreed that there was a momentum effect in, in, uh, in, in you know, the 21st century. So it took them like two decades to actually come to that agreement. But the first work on cross-sectional momentum was done in about 1993, which when it was published. So it's, it was probably done in the you know early 90s. So there's a lag between publication. So, uh, but what happens is, is, is that all of the finance, you know, driven MBAs who are the quants on Wall Street, because they were steeped in this cross-sectional discussion or cross-sectional view of how you look at the world, that's the way they sort of slice the data, and that's how they can, uh, they, they sort of develop these these momentum uh, mechanisms. Well, the trend followers just sort of say, "I'm not looking at the cross-sectional performance. I'm just all I care about is does the market make money on the set of uh, markets that I'm looking at? Uh, you know, when I when I move forward through time, does my trend following model work on a, on a time series basis?" So, no, there has been evidence, you know, it's time series techniques, you know, let's say autoregressive moving average or ARIMA models that uh, have, have looked at whether there's autocorrelation in, in uh, markets. But that is, is sort of harder to get, to grapple with than just the idea of, of trend following. Now, the most exhaustive studies that have looked at this, when they've looked at trend on an absolute basis versus momentum, which is the relative basis, they say, which one does better? And generally that it's found surprisingly to some degrees uh, that the absolute trend does better when you look at sharp ratios over a long history than the cross-sectional momentum studies. Now, when I say it's surprising, because if you said, if I rank order all of the markets I trade and I'm only going to pick the best trends on the long side and the, and the worst and the, the worst trends on a short side, you sort of say, yep, that should always outperform something if I trade all the markets. Yet in reality is, is that the time series uh, does better. Now, does it do the, does it do better all the time? No. Okay. Does it differ based on asset class? Absolutely. Does the cross-sectional uh, momentum approach do better at some times when the trend does poorly? Yes. And so what happens is that you'll sort of say that there are trend followers, getting back to this STM framework, when you talk to them, that they'll do sort of a combination of absolute and relative. So they might sort of say, yeah, I, I have a lot of markets absolute, and then I might have a second model that's looking at the cross-sectional. Or my, I might sort of say, as, as you referred to, that if there's a short 
the short has to be showing that the trend is down to take that short position. So in general, this is, is that the correlations between you know absolute versus relative trend following, they could be between anywhere from you know 0.5 or four to seven. So so there is a positive correlation between the two, but it's but it's not a strong correlation. So so you can can do or use both. Uh, there will be a big difference between performance now. What we find is, is, is that the cross-sectional has generally been applied most in the equity markets. And at the same time, we'll sort of say that the, there's high variation in, in the performance of the cross-sectional. And we could sort of say uh, that this cross-sectional analysis shows us that, that you know, there is a mean reversion in stocks so that there's momentum up till about uh, you know, 18 months, uh, you know, so if I, if I look at past performance and then I track that going forward, I don't rebalance this, is that at some point that, that high performance or, or positive momentum performance will reverse. And so, so there is a mean reversion component, at least they've shown that equities and, and I think that they see it in other asset classes too. Yeah. Very good. All right. We'll see what um, what we make. So that was a long-winded answer to a simple question to say, yeah, say no, yes, I agree with Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good, good, good. All right. Well, we, I think we're going to shift gears now. If I look at the uh, the next topic, you, uh, I mean, again, like always with you, Mark, we're not going to have a chance to get through all the topics, but um, we'll pick the best ones. But there was one here that just was interesting. Molecule crisis, just in case commodities ver with ESG unintended consequences. Where are you going with this one? Well, there's interestingness. This is that a couple of analysts sort of say that, that uh, we we are at a molecule crisis. In a sense, this is that there's yeah there's shortages of everything on the commodity side. And right. we sort of say, well, you know, shortages exist. Because what happens is is, is that uh, there is a uh, we have very inelastic supply in a very short run. So if demand actually increases, or if let's say we shut off supply for a while, you can't just turn it on automatically. So is that if we have a shortage of corn, you can't just sort of say, "Well, you're going to have to wait until the next season to before you're going to uh, grow." So to buy a piece uh, of bread, and you know. Uh, and you see see this with oil is is that we shut down a lot of uh, fracking in the United States for any of a number of reasons, and so so now you can't just sort of say like, well, you know, given financing and other issues, you can't just turn it back uh, back on. I think second of all is this is that you know a theme that we've been talking about is this is that uh, we've gone from uh, uh, just in time inventory management to just in case. So so just in time was sort of so like. Yeah, because of my logistics and my uh, computing power and my ability to track things, you know, I don't need to have a lot of inventory. Inventory is just a, you know, uh, the, the inventory is old school. That's for the gray-haired guys. Those are for chumps. You know, I, I can always just get run my logistics better, and I can get get it. Well, we found out that that wasn't the case in a crisis, so we now need to sort of build up inventories. So we be just in case. So we need a precautionary motive to hold more inventories. So that's also a increase. So so not only do you have you know, stronger demand coming out of COVID, but then you also have this idea that I need to hold more inventories. 
So, so you got excess demand on one side, you got a shortage on the other side. But I bring this up on the ESG because even what we're sort of seeing is, is, is that there's this uh, uh, negativity towards fossil fuels. Okay. And uh, even I think that they look at the head of supervision for the Fed that is, is now uh, winding its way through, uh, the fine, uh, through committees in the Senate. The person has made comments, said, well, you know, we need to do sort of stress tests, you know, so, uh, according to what, what's in your portfolio, who you lend to. So, for example, energy companies, and uh, because this is, is that you're financing, you know, the, uh, uh, our, our death sentence with, uh, with fossil fuels. And so what you sort of see this is that the movement to ESG has unintended consequences in the commodities markets. When you think about it, is is, is is that if you sort of say we don't, we should not invest in fossil fuels because it's going to create methane gases. Well, if you don't make that investment, then you're not going to be able to extract oil at cheap prices or in the quantities that we need at this particular point. You're going to create a stress point such that the price of oil is going to go up. Now, some say that that would be good because then it makes renewables, you know, on a relative basis cheaper. But at the same time, this is that we shouldn't be surprised if, let's say, that we're going to put restrictions on, on or we want energy companies that are involved in fossil fuels to uh, change their direction, change their strategy, that then we're going to find less oil and less na- natural gas. And that this would then cause an impact on supply. The same, obviously, is, is that that has an impact on fertilizer because of how you use energy to, to, uh, to make fertilizer. That's going to have an impact on our agricultural prices. If you sort of say that we want to have more sustainable investing, and I think there's been some great innovation and technology in the agricultural space. But if you sort of say this, that, that we want to sort of be more careful on how we sort of where we plant, how we plant, what we use for pesticides and fertilizers, all that will have an impact is that we've gone from tremendously high increase in the yields per acre for many crops. That's going to change. Uh, you look at uh, palm oil, for example, this is, you know, this is vital and especially in, in, in uh, Asia, this is, it's, it's critical is, is that that does affect, you know, sort of, uh, our jungles in there because they, they they're going to tear up a forest to to plant almost like a row crop you know from our uh, palm oil this is that that's going to have an impact on the, on the commodities again so ESG is not commodity neutral it is going to uh, if we do have a transition that's going to lead to sort of impact on supplies which is then going to have an impact on the potential trends that we see. Because you could say, like, we can't just, uh, if there's an increase in demand, you can't just turn that off, or you can't just then sort of ramp up the supply in a short period of time. It can't be done. And so so what we're seeing is, is that uh, in commodities, is, is that we had the last super cycle lasted through 2008. Then we had, we'll call it the super decline in commodities. And we'll sort of say now we're having, uh, and the natural progression in a super cycle is, is that 
we underinvest in commodities because the prices fall. And then, uh, but now we have this other existential issue or exogenous issue of ESG, which is also impacting the investment choices. Now, we'll always sort of say in commodities is, is that from a value st- statement is, is that the solution to low prices and commodities is low prices. This is that eventually that, that, that drives some people out of the market, which means is that there's going to have to be new investment, new entrants come in, and then we'll get the, the increase in price. But so we are having a molecule crisis. We are having an adjustment in inventories. We are having some supply shocks. And we're having this other exogenous issue of ESG, which is affecting how we invest in these commodities areas that are very capital intensive, which is going to have an impact on commodity prices. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, ESG certainly um, had some unintended consequences, as you rightly said. And I think we're learning these at the moment, uh, the hard way, certainly over here in Europe, with energy prices uh, at extreme levels uh, over this winter. Now, in the interest of time, I want to try and get two shorter answers from you, Mark, if that's possible, because I think there are two <laughs> topics that they sound so interesting that I don't want to miss them. Okay. So, um, so just bear that in mind. But the two topics that I want you to uh, kind of give us your uh, thoughts on are the following. Never bring data to a story fight and Moscow rules the spy game and trading. That just sounds interesting. So let's see if we can do that in in five or ten okay. minutes. There's two things I've been writing about in my blog. One is, is that I love this quote. This is uh, don't bring data to a story fight. And 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 this is uh, going back to the whole idea of narrative. Is this is that uh, we spend all our time we reading uh, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, watching the talking heads, and this. And generally, what they do is they bring in some data, but generally, is is that it's all about narrative. Is they're telling a story, they're weaving a story to explain what's going on. Uh, even if there isn't data, they'll weave a story to tell you what's going on. <laughs> so and. You know, if the market goes down, they'll look for whatever news came out and then they'll tell you that that's the story that caused the market to go lower. And in some senses, is that what's the worst thing that you could do? What's the buzzkill to anyone who's telling a good story? You know, facts that don't agree with the story. And and I think that uh, what is systematic investing is, is, is that uh, it's the opposite of storytelling. It's fact-based. So the... The author who wrote this is works in uh, the area of nat- narrative and computational uh, science, but I, I think, uh, and I, it may not have been his intended uh, intention. But I always think is is, is that uh, the buzzkill to most stories and narratives is bringing facts to the table, and that's what a systematic investor does. What about the Moscow rules then? How do they Moscow rules is? That with all the problems that were been issued with uh, Ukraine and Russia, you know, it was a an interesting uh, view. Is that the CIA operatives when they uh, were in Moscow, they sort of said that there's a set of unwritten rules that we had to follow to make sure that we could protect ourselves, so that we, we wouldn't be you know caught up in some spy net. And uh, and it, it sort of said like these are the rules that they gave the any CIA operative who was in Moscow, and it, it was. A set of uh, of rules such as assume nothing, uh, never go against your gut, 
uh, pick the time and place for action. Keep your options open. Uh, go with the flow. Blend in. And so there's a whole set of them. And I was reading all of these. I said, you know, this is part of what you need to do to be a good trader. So so there's uh, we often talk about, well, okay, what is the mechanistic of how you have to actually build your models? And here's the systems and here's the trends. But one of the big issues I found when I was, you know, when we were at a really large CTA, we, you know, we became a big trend follower. We had big positions we had to move in the market. And all of a sudden, this is that how you traded mattered a huge amount on whether you had impact on the price or whether we could mask our behavior. And so some said implicitly we're following the Musco rules of making sure that we could try to be as stealthy as possible. Uh, and so it, like one of the rules, again, is lull them into a sense of complacency. So we didn't want people to know what we were doing. We wanted to make sure that we assume nothing. We assume that uh, 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 everyone is potentially under opposition control. Uh, so, so that you always have to say they're always watching you. So, so it's a views of how you want to trade to have sort of a sense of paranoia about whether people can replicate what you can do. Uh, and I think that uh, there's another good book that I often refer to is, is, is that uh, uh, you remember Andy Grove from Intel. So he had uh, the best title for any business book that only the paranoid survive. <laughs> and I think that that really applies to a lot of trading. It's, it's, it's that, that doesn't mean you don't want to have friends. It doesn't mean you don't want to share and, and, uh, and uh, work with others. But you have to realize this, that, this is, uh, th- that your winnings is going to be at the expense of someone else generally, especially in futures as a zero-sum game. So you always have to assume that there are other people that are trying to take advantage of whatever you are doing. Yeah, no, I think it's absolutely right in that the kind of the the similarity with a spy and a trend follower is definitely we want to blend in. We don't want to be seen uh, and all of that, except for the point about follow your gut. Uh, you know, I don't think we want to encourage that uh, as a trend follower. Right. So, so, but the one thing you really have to sort of say on a trend follower is this is that. Uh, uh, there are liquidity providers to Wall Street and there are liquidity takers. Generally, because you're going to be uh, buying when prices are moving higher and selling when prices are going lower, you're uh, a liquidity taker. You're not a liquidity yeah. provider. So when you think about trying to be paranoid or uh, being more stealthy, it's important because you are not adding liquidity to the market is, is that you're grabbing it from someone else and so there's a price for that liquidity and so consequently you want to try to make sure that your uh your trading is stealthy because you don't want people to uh you don't want to be charged the price for that liquidity or you want to make sure that it's minimized as much as possible sure no absolutely Okay, great. So, of course, we still have some topics uh, left we need to dive into uh, next time, and I'm sure we'll add some more topics uh, in the meantime as well. Um, but let's leave it there uh, since we've already been go- going on for 75 minutes. Um, in terms of performance, um, as an update, um, yeah, the industry still looks pretty strong. Uh, Btop 50 is up uh, 1.7% in February so far, up 338 uh, for the year. 
Sokjin CTA index up 2.38 for the month of Feb, up 4.5 for the year. Trend index uh, on fire up 3.79 for the month, up 7.28 for the year. And the short-term traders index is up 84 basis points in February, up a little bit more than 2% for the year. Still looking pretty good. Uh, my trend barometer finished at 55 uh, yesterday, so that's pretty strong. Uh, MSCI World Index down 2.47% in February so far, uh, down 7.68% for the year. And the World Government Bond Index uh, also having another rough time this month, down uh, 1.53% month to date. If you like these uh, episodes and you want to share them with some of your uh, friends, um, why not use the link toptradersunplugged.com forward slash share. Just send that link to your friends and they can choose exactly which podcast platform they want to listen in on. Next week, I'm joined by Rich. Um, so that's going to be a super fun and good to, to get him back. Give us an update on his battleship. Make sure your questions come in for that conversation. Uh, email to info at toptradersonplot.com and we will do our best to bring them on the show. That's pretty much it for now. From Mark and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.